This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. My name is Emily Zinn, and I'm the Associate Director of the Carsey Wolf Center, and it is my great pleasure to welcome to the Pollock writer and producer Kira Snyder to talk about her work on The Handmaid's Tale. Kira, thank you so much for coming. Thanks so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Now, so I want to start first with the question of your initial involvement with The Handmaid's Tale. When did you get involved with the project and what attracted you Mm -hmm. to working on The Handmaid's Tale? Well, I've been working on another show um, called The Hundred, it's on the CW, Um, really fun, cool, dystopian young adult show. Um, And I had happened to be working on that show for the first two seasons with Bruce Miller, who is the creator and showrunner of The Handmaid's Tale. Um, And I had worked with uh, Bruce off and on in in times past, um, but he uh, left uh, The Hundred to work on something he couldn't talk about uh, (laughs) until finally I got a phone call when I was, uh, I had just finished season three of The Hundred, and he said, hey, you know, I'm I'm doing this project. Would you be interested in reading the script? And I said, oh, oh my God, of course, of course I would because I love the book. Um, yeah, so I, re- I read an early draft of it. And once it kind of got rolling as a, as, as a project, um, he mentioned my name to MGM and I went in to meet with them. And um, I joined the staff uh, the, for that first season. And we've, I've been with the show the, the whole time. And actually, a lot of the people on staff uh, have been there since the beginning. It's, there, there has not been a lot of turnover, which is a really good sign it's a nice for a shop. show. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great staff. Um, that kind of continuity is really is really great. We try to add some new voices every year just to get some new eyes uh, uh, on the material, new voices in in the mix. Um, but Bruce has kind of collected people from a bunch of shows he's worked on. Basically, his whole career. So there's a woman who worked with him when he was on ER, and some of us came on with some other shows. Um, but it's a it's a it's a terrific group. Excellent. Yeah. So just gathered up his team. So I'm interested in the idea that these last two projects you worked on, um, The Hundred and Handmaid's Tale, are these dystopian um, <laughs> texts. So I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about the appeal of that form for you. What, what, um, what do you like about dystopia as a, as a genre? Yeah, I, 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 I do love me a good dystopia. Um, <laughs> and I think a lot of people do. A lot of shows, uh, there's so many that are... Um, kind of in these worlds that are you know, in the future or alternate versions of our world where they're broken. Uh, I find them compelling for a couple of reasons. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, sometimes they're very much cautionary tales, like like our show. Like, mm-hmm. if you're not paying attention to where the world is going, if you uh, are apathetic, if you don't get involved, um, you know, bad things can happen. Uh, but also, I like the kind of survival adventure kind of sure. aspect of it. It ends up, ends up being kind of a what-if kind of story. Um, like, how would I survive? You know, would I, you know, would I be you know, plucky? Would I fold? Um, you know, how would I make my way in the world? And also the deeper questions of how do you change as a person when your survival is minute to minute like it is for, for June? Um, what do you give up? What do you sacrifice? How do you change kind of deeply and morally and spiritually? Yeah. What if you have to give birth by yourself? By yourself in, in a, a isolated house. house. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, good. So I'm interested, too, in the various hats that you wear for this show. Mm-hmm. You are um, both a writer and an executive producer. Mm-hmm. So can you talk to us a little bit about how those two roles operate and how they interact in your daily life? 
Yeah, so that's one of the things I enjoy most about working in television, um, as, as you and, and, and your audience may know. Um, TV is where the writer is really kind of uh, king or, or queen, or pick, <laughs> nice. pick your monarch of your choice. Uh, so the, the, you know, the writers are obviously writing the scripts, we're breaking the story. Um, myself as a senior writer, I will often uh, you know, mentor younger writers or offer early feedback or try to help solve, you know, problem solve if they're working on scripts. Um, but then, as producers, uh, we're deeply involved. And then Bruce is the is the you know, the top of the, the top of the executive producer heap is the showrunner. Um, he is the boss, so he is responsible for the creative vision all the way along. So he's kind of like the CEO of of this company. Um, so then, myself and the other um, EPs on staff are kind of his lieutenants. So he delegates to us. So we uh, take certain things off his plate. We'll go to meetings um, in his stead. Um, you know, uh, one of my areas of of, um, of of helping in times past has been the casting liaison. So um, I kind of track which characters we need for which episodes mm-hmm. so we can get those deals um, locked up. I, you know, I'll write uh, breakdowns and signs for casting the actors. I'll take a first pass at watching the auditions. All of that's really just to try to um, take some things off of uh, the showrunner's plate because it's a very all-consuming job. Right. So, so the producer um, does those things. But yeah, we're involved start to finish. So we obviously write the scripts. Um, we're involved in prep. We're talking to the directors. Um, I actually have a call schedule with the director for 402, an episode that I wrote for season four coming up um, uh, on Friday. Um, so those are ongoing conversations. Uh, we might go to set uh, to cover set. So that's answering questions and solving problems, um, maybe adjusting lines if an actor has a, has a question. Uh, and then we're in post. So we're there for the editing um, and the music spotting uh, and, and all those. And sometimes even yet more, yet more writing. There might be additional dialogue that needs to get added even after it's all been shot and edited. So it's kind of the whole so, thing. So many hats. So many right? hats. Yeah. Lots of getting, hats. Getting to have your fingers in so many aspects of this show. It sounds fascinating. Yeah, it's very, it's very satisfying because you really help to craft... It's, I mean, some, some, every show operates differently. Some shows you really are just the writer. You write the script, and, and that's kind of all you do. Um, other shows like this one, uh, you get to be involved in, in, in crafting the whole thing. Right, right. Um, so I'm interested in this show and the process of adaptation, right? Because this, of course, is being adapted from material from a very popular novel by a living writer. So can you talk a little bit about... How, how the show interacts with, how, first of all, in the first season, how it interacted with the novel, and how you interact with Margaret Atwood in the writing process. Yeah, so season one uh, very much followed the events of the of the novel. I mean, there's some the ordering of things was a little bit mm-hmm. different from here to there. Um, and but the season ended where the where the where the book ended, and uh, that was kind of always the plan. That book would be would be the spine, um, and. So certainly through the first season, but even beyond then, uh, one of our really strong guidelines for the whole project is to be um, responsible to the vision of the book uh, mm-hmm. and for the world that Margaret Atwood created. So she's a producer uh, on the project, so she will read outlines and read scripts. It's very daunting to know that Margaret Atwood <laughs> is, is reading, reading your, your script. Um, but, she, but she does read those, uh, and she'll occasionally offer feedback. She's, she's very busy, so we're very grateful for her time when she uh, can give it. Um, but she is very much a collaborative partner, and we take it as our responsibility to be authentic to what she, what she did. So we try to stay not just in, in the voice and the tone of the book, but the things she kept in mind when she wrote it. So she has said that there's nothing in the book that hasn't happened in the past, and our, 
of human history past right. or is happening right now. And that's true of the show as well. We're not, we don't look for new you know, cruel inventions or, or new terrible points of view. We, we, we look to you know, current history and, 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 and the past as well. So those are all things that are grounded in, 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 real, um, in, in real incidents. And we do a lot of research. We speak to the United Nations very often. We speak to human rights organizations, reproductive rights organizations, doctors, because uh, we really want everything to feel authentic and grounded. Right. We don't so, have to invent horrors. There no, there's plenty enough. out there, as it turns out. Yeah. yeah. So can you talk a little bit about, um, just in comparison, you wrote um, Jezebel's, the episode mm-hmm. from season one, which you know has, has some material that's not in the book, like the, the Nick backstory, but then it mm-hmm. has a spine of material from the novel. Can you compare that to the process of writing something like Holly, which yeah. is past the... Past the, the novels. Yeah, yeah. Well, one, one other thing about the adaptation that has been um, really great for us is that even though the novel's not very long, if you've read it, it's mm-hmm. a very kind of slender novel, um, and it's very uh, constrained in point of view. You're really just with Offred um, the entire time. Um, but even though you're kind of in her, like her bonnet cam, we, 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 call, it, <laughs> we call it her bonnet view, um, even though you're just in her view in, in, the, in the book in that sense, um, there's still this really broad and rich world outside her her, her, her bonnet view that Margaret Atwood has, has built. And so on the show, what we're able to do is actually kind of go out into those other areas. Sure. So um, so it's very, it's always June's story. We always kind of come back to her and what she's going through. But because um, Margaret Atwood built this amazing, both deep and, and broad world for us to explore, we're actually able to, to kind of dive into that. Um, so in a weird way, um, Holly was, uh, even though it has its own challenges, it was, it was, for me, it was easier to write than Jezebel's. Jezebel's I was frankly very daunted by because it's a really, really important section in the book and I wanted to be, I wanted to do it right. You know, and it's I, such a strange new space to take those characters so into, right? Yeah, because yeah, you, yeah, you, you will have been, well, in our show, you had the flashbacks, but, you, but you, you're in you know, her, her corner of Gilead the entire time, and then everything's so constrained and, and careful, and then you go to this place, which is this kind of weird you know, funhouse mirror flashback of what men think a fantasy right. brothel would be. It's, it's, right. all, it's all constructed. It's not, a, it's not a real place for any real sense, uh, which is one of the reasons why we wanted to show kind of the behind-the-scenes section of Jezebel's. Yes. Because what we were able to do there uh, is, is contrast what the men want for themselves, which is something that looks very you know, pretty and sexy and elegant and put together. And then these women are basically, they're living in sexual slavery. So you know, the, the, the dorm they're in, you know, the research we looked at were, were, were women are sexually trafficked and what right. those kind of backstage spaces look like. Um, so, so, so that was, so Jezebel's was uh, daunting because it is, you know, a key part of the book. We get to see Moira again. We haven't known what's happened to Moira. Right. Reuniting her Reuniting with that with her key with that. figure. Yeah. Nice. And then Holly, Holly was a little bit more freeing because we knew, you know, she's, she starts the season pregnant. So she know, we know she's going to give birth at some, some point, at some point. And then this particular story, just the very broad strokes of her being in a place where she has to give birth by herself was, um, in, in Bruce's mind from the very beginning, probably of the show actually. Mm. Um, but how and where and the details of how this is going to happen. We didn't know how that would unfold until we got, got to that part of the story breaking process. Interesting. But he knew he wanted to give her that particular challenge of yeah. sort of giving birth in isolation. In isolation. In and where that was going to be, I mean, up until the episode previous where she's brought to this 
kind of strange boarded up summer house uh, to meet uh, Hannah, uh, we didn't know where she was going to be giving birth. So um, the idea became pretty early on, like, well, instead of taking her out of this really amazing location and finding her someplace else to be stranded in Iceland, how about we strand her here? How about, right. how about we leave her where this traumatic event had happened? Um, so that was a piece that came into uh, focus really early in the process. Yeah, and it's such a wonderful, strange, and uncanny space to work in. You were talking a little bit um, backstage about your notes in the script about tone. Can you say a little bit about what you wanted the tone of that um, those scenes to, to be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Dana Reed is the director of this episode. Um, a mar- she's directing for us actually uh, this season as well. Really talented. She got nominated for an Emmy for this episode, mm-hmm. for a DGA award, very deservedly. Um, so we, we don't do a ton of directing on the page. We have lots of conversations with the directors when we work with them. Um, but for this one in, in particular, the things we were really leaning into were... Um, June's kind of struggle to survive. Someone mm-hmm. described this episode to me once as kind of like the, the revenant for feminists, which I thought was a really <laughs> kind of funny, funny description, but it is. It's, it's this grueling ordeal. Um, but within that, we also wanted to have moments of lightness. So that's part of the reason we have the flashbacks are not only is she kind of drawing from her memories um, for strength as she's going through this process, but it also, just in the pace of the episode, allows, uh, allows us to get some dialogue in there because it's a very dialogue light episode otherwise, um, and also some lighter moments. So really embracing the lightness and the warmth of those moments of something that we talked the about. The total kind of change of color, right? Total that that house, yeah. the light is so gray and so wintry, and then you get that warmth that comes in in the flashbacks. Yeah. And then the other, the other total thing that I thought was um, really well done by the director is I, I really wanted... When um, early on to be scary when the Waterfords show up because any number of possible people could show up and make things hard for June. It could just be some random, you know, guardian neighborhood patrol or a neighbor or something like that. Um, but the people she wants to see least in that moment <laughs> in the entire world are those two. Um, right. So they come, and I wanted to feel like a horror movie. And Dana Reed, the director, has directed many, many things, but she's also done horror. And I thought she really captured that sense when Serena's kind of stalking through the, right. the house, yelling for Alfred. Like, it's, it's scary. She's the monster in the house in that, in that moment. Well, and you get that kind of horror tone earlier on, too, when you get all those weird, oblique angles that were sort of we're kind of following June around the house, stalking her as she's gathering things up and changing clothes and doing all the things she's doing. We're always looking at her in these, yeah. you know, from these funny angles. So yeah, yeah, it's got a little bit of an Overlook Hotel kind of feel to it. Yeah, right. I mean, this big space that still somehow manages to feel kind of claustrophobic and, and off-putting. And having all the furniture covered, yes. right? The idea that it's a space that's sort of not that is a domestic space, but it's not in use right this minute. It's something really uncanny about it that I love. So I want to circle back around a little bit to the idea of silence in that Mm -hmm. script. So what was the experience like of um, writing something where you're really relying so much on a character being alone and being mm-hmm. silent. Yeah, the, uh, the, the the shooting script of this episode was only 30 pages, which if you know a drama script, it's, it's, that's very short. Um, but, but What's your average? Uh, well, actually, ours tend to be a little short because they do... Um, so we love to let moments breathe, but mm-hmm. also, and this, this episode is a really an example of it, um, we really like to lean into the visual storytelling. Right. Um, so our, our episodes, they're, they're usually just, just a little bit north of 40 pages, which, okay. again, you, know, you think about 
about you know West Wing or Gilmore Girls, those pages, those scripts were probably <laughs> seventy pages. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> novels a lot of dialogue, fairly fast dialogue. Um, yeah, it's it, in some ways it's a challenge because you're having to convey things without words, but in part because um, Elizabeth Moss is so incredibly talented, and because this this story. Uh, it's, a, it's a very simple story. Like you know, she has goals that are very clear and easy to express without having her to talk, having to talk about them. Um, we just kind of just let the moment unfold. I mean, there there was some more voiceover that we ended up not using um, mm. because you didn't need it. You know, you don't need her to narrate how she's feeling because you can see on her face just because she's so good as an actor you can see what she's what she's seeing um so what that did though is it that made um the moments where there is dialogue um kind of we had to pay sort of extra close attention to it because right. they, they would be sitting in the midst of of this silence and there's also very little score if you've noticed I mean, right. most, a lot of it's um, there's there, so much just breathing it's breathing it's the noises of the house it's the noises of the woods um the creaking of the floor and, and there there is there is score but the way it's used is very much to to underscore that tone we were talking about before. right right and i want to talk a little bit about the voiceover because so it's interesting to know that there was more of it and some of it was stripped out because what you've got left in there it's very distinctive. You know, it's this address to this you who's in the future. Can you talk a little bit about that That little bit of you? Yeah, that, that little bit there? at the beginning and the end. That's more or less right from the novel. It's mm-hmm. right from the book. Yeah. Um, and that's... So when you talk about, you know, when people ask us about, like, well, you, you've, you've moved so far beyond the book. Like, you know, what's that like? We keep going back to the book because the book finding is... Finding little bits. We're finding little bits. I actually borrowed a piece of dialogue not too long ago in an episode for season four. Um, so so we, we go back to the book for, um, for inspiration. Uh, and also, like, frankly, when, when you get stuck, and I was trying to think about the, what the voiceover might be at the top of this episode, I, I couldn't come up with anything that just felt right that was really good um so went back to the book and and this this you know that 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 portion really stuck um stuck out at me because it really encapsulated this moment um for her but also was a little bit of a meta moment because you know the the entire show is something that could be easy to forget the entire show she's actually telling us a story right the whole show is her narrating into the into a tape in fact if you listen really really carefully the very first episode you can hear the click of mm-hmm. of, of of a record button being depressed um and the and the way the uh, the audio is treated when she does voiceover is very carefully to be to sound like it's recorded so um, it's a little bit of uh, an address to to the, the audience who's watching the show, uh, in part because, particularly in this season, particularly in the previous episode, it, it's been a, a bad run for, for June. Mm-hmm. June's had a really rough time. The story is extremely painful. And so um, both for, for her and her life and, her, and the show, the episode in this season, um, we wanted to kind of acknowledge, you know, this is a story. There are some good moments. I'm going to tell you about one of them. Right. And, and there's some hard moments, some fragmentary moments. Like the, yeah. I just think that that direct address and that kind of apologizing for her own story, that's a really great you know, chunk to have pulled out of the novel and, and added into this really intense episode. So, yes. um, so let's, let's talk about the wolf. <laughs> <laughs> can, um, can you tell us a little bit more about, and the wolf to me was so striking in that it makes you realize how few natural yeah. images there are in this story that in general, it's very urban and very controlled. And if you see nature, it's controlled in the way of like Serena's plants in the greenhouse. And here you've got, you know, 
an honest-to-God wild wolf. animal. Yeah. <laughs> right? Actual Canadian wolf, yeah. Right, right. Um, so tell me about the process of deciding to put a wolf in the middle of this story. Yeah, so when we were breaking the story, um, pretty early on we wanted um, some some sense of the, of the wild natural world, mm-hmm. uh, in part because we were not. Specifically, we were not in that very controlled, right. you know, urban Gilead setting, um, but also a little bit of world-building in that, um, you know, Gilead is a... Is a, is a a terrible government, a terrible place. They've done a lot of awful things. The one thing they've done really well is take care of the environment. So it's kind of a climate change story. Um, so the fact that wolves are coming back into um, areas that had previously been only for humans, like that's a, a little bit of a mini story we wanted to tell. Um, but it wasn't originally a wolf. We were looking for some kind of you know wild animal and. Hmm. Could it be a deer or a you know a moose or, or something? I know with a moose. But 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 I, I I came to the wolf in part uh, because the iconography is so striking. Obviously, mm-hmm. you have kind of Little Red Riding Hood and the wolf. It feels very much like a fairy tale. Um, but I also wanted uh, something that um, and we don't. The show doesn't really get into symbolism too much. This is mm-hmm. probably the closest we've ever gotten. I was interested in having something that was something wild that her relationship could change with over the course of the story. Right. So when you, the very first time you see the wolf, um, it's terrifying. Like it's scary. Like she, you know, she, she, you know, she, she just got stranded at this place. There's this wolf. Oh my God, what does it mean? And then, but over the course of the episode, the, the nature of the wolf and her relationship to it changes. She, in the middle of it, when she kind of, after she falls, that terrifying fall, and she sees the wolf there, she kind of draws strength from it. She's like, I'm, I'm a wild, natural thing. You know, Gilead doesn't have any strings on me. I can, I can do this. It's kind of what she's, what she's getting from the wolf in that moment. And the, then at the end, where she has made this really sad decision, but necessary decision to kind of summon help. You know, she right. shoots the gun to the air, knowing that someone will come and find her because she is afraid of dying, and then her, her, her baby would die as well. Um, she's doing that. She's basically giving herself back to civilization, and and that's what. And then the, the wolf goes. The wolf returns to the wilderness in the same time that she um, is uh, returns to civilization. Is going back yeah. to civilization, and then then also just the kind of the, the slightly more um, plot reasons. We wanted her to um, to have a threat that was outside. You know, but obviously she's nine months pregnant. It's snowy. She's not going to get very far. But we wanted something out there that kept her from. Even making a making a, a go for it out through right. the woods, um, so the wolf kind of the wolf also wore a lot of hats as it turns out. <laughs> well, and it just proliferates the threats, sure. right? It's like, oh, and this too, and now there's a wolf. Like, yeah. come on, yeah. this lady can't she cannot, catch a break. She cannot ca- catch a break now. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about about Little Red Riding Hood mm-hmm. and and the place of that story in there. You know, at, Atwood makes. So many fairy tale yes. references in her fiction. She's obviously very immersed in that, and she ha- does make references in the original novel to um, the, you know, the red cloak and everything. But you right. guys actually put the put the wolf in the story here. Yep. <laughs> um, so, what what do you make of the little Red Riding Hood connection? Was there something you uh, in invoking that story? Was there some place you were interested in going with it? Um, it if only to subvert it, you know, yeah. like, I mean, there, you know, there's, there's, there's versions of, of the Little Red Riding Hood story where, you know, she, she's the one who's, who's, who's triumphant. Um, we're obviously, we're not interested in having a uh, genio, you know, kill the wolf, whatever, but, but the idea right. of finding, finding something, um, sympathetic, mm-hmm. uh, in this wild creature, it's, you know, it's, I mean, in, in so 
in, in the world of the show, and certainly in this episode, um, the, the wolf is not the dangerous thing. The wolf is not the monster. The monster, right. the, the two people that there come in, so in the car. So, so many other monsters. Um, but uh, the idea of kind of the fact that she's giving birth, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wild thing. It's a natural thing. It's a mm-hmm. thing that, you know, mammals have been doing for so, 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 so many years. Um, we just want to, uh, interested in finding um, a, a kind of a, a, a strength for her. A nice a, twist on that. Well, kind on of that like a tale. Patronus kind of thing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, I think the other thing that's interesting about invoking Red Riding Hood in this context is that it's such a story about relationships between mothers and daughters and grandmothers. You know, it's the story about a mother sending her daughter out into the woods where there are wolves. And right. that seems so interesting to me in the context of the title of the episode and the fact that the Holly character comes back around here. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the role of, um, of June's mother in this and of that, that Holly figure. Yeah. Yeah. We, we love Holly. I mean, Cherry Jones is spectacular. And then that's, uh, and back to another adaptation point, the Holly is a character. Um, so, so June's mother, who's, she's actually never named in the novel, but she's a, she is a big character in the novel. Um, but we just didn't have space for her in season one. Like we, we we kept trying to find a place to put her in, but there just wasn't room for her. We only had right. ten episodes in season one, so there wasn't room for that character. Um, but we were actually able to tell more of the, the Holly story in season two. So that's mm-hmm. you know that's something that we saved from season one to put into season two. Um, so how we got to having her her back in in this episode at the end of the season, towards the end of the season, is really just doing doing the work of the story work of thinking. Um, what is June? What is June thinking about? You know, June is yes. going through this process. It's you know, there are a lot of um, moms and dads in our staffs, and uh, sort of talk through like, of course, you know, you, you get reminded of um, you know your previous births or your previous kids when yes. you're about to have you know your second, uh, and uh, we want to tell the story of how Holly was involved in that, and and they're not all they're not all good memories. I mean, the the drop off scene there is like a pretty much a direct you know, an anecdote from one of our other writers, just how heartrending that is, is, you know, you're just dropping your kid off at school. Like it's, it's a fairly harmless thing, but like the kid can make it really hard for you to, to, right. to, to leave. And so you have to put on the brave face and it's, it's a story of separation. Um, so, so, so having those moments that things she would be thinking about things that, you know, kind of haunt her or bother her, but also towards the end, when she realized she has to do this, she has to give birth what is she thinking of to, to, to make her strong? Um, and she is thinking about her mom, and for, with whom she's had this pretty complicated relationship fraught with. relationship, Very right? Fraught, the idea yeah. that she's not, she's not a strong person in her mother's mode, and yet she does draw strength from that memory, right? From that history there. right and and her, her her mom gives her props like she's like you know you did it like you you were you, I, you know i know I, she, she doesn't say i told you so because she she could um but she you know she acknowledges uh, the strength that she saw in june even though june did not see it in herself right and and june also doesn't say i told you so in terms of her mom not, not actually here, showing yeah. <laughs> up like you know so that yeah. i to me that's really interesting about those you know, those ways in which our mothers always, you know, both fail us, mm-hmm. right, in, the, in these ways. Like the, the drop-off section is, it's a beautiful moment because it's so mundane. Yeah. Like anybody who's ever dropped a kid at daycare has had that precise experience and it feels really tragic in the moment. But in this context of the huge tragedy that June is right. living, it's really, 
you know, it's such a such yeah. A we're really like we like we like those moments in, in yeah. the flashbacks, like just a, kind of the more the more mundane, the more real, the so better. So lived in, so yeah, lived in, exactly. Yeah. Getting yeah. ready for a party with your spouse, like yeah. that. You know, you tell who the work friends are. Like, sure, that's a thing that yeah. people do. And then as a, as a storytelling thing, we, with, we we find that that helps ground the rest of the episode. So there's yes. episodes, you know, the uh, on the show can be. Hugely dramatic and heightened, and you know, and hopefully are things that we'll never experience in our own lives. Um, but hopefully, they feel more real because we've shown this other kind of you know crumb of a life that did feel real. This facet of her other life, yeah. So okay, so the wolf is the one image in this show that hits me, and then the other image that really hits me is the gun. Uh-huh. Right, this is the moment where you have given June a shotgun, mm-hmm. right? And to me, this seems particularly striking because it feels like one of the first moments where June sort of contemplates doing something violent that isn't a response to an immediate stimulus. You know, it's not like someone does something to her and she does something back. It's really, she's up there in that weird (laughs) attic cupola space considering, you know, ambushing the Waterfords. And of course, the Waterfords completely deserve to be ambushed by a crazy person with a shotgun. But so can you talk about the process of introducing that, why you're introducing a gun at this point and why you're introducing those kinds of impulses at this point in June's story? Yeah, it's interesting looking at this episode in this moment, um, now that we're like, we're partway through season four, um, how June is a really different person. So we talk a lot about like how, you know, June season one would not have been able to have kind of gone through the stuff that she's going through in this in, you know, in this episode. Right. Um, right now, like the June that we have through the end of season three into season four, I'm not sure she would not have taken that shot after right. all. I think she probably would. <laughs> you <laughs> certainly seem to be pushing her in that yeah. direction ethically. Like yeah. her ethics are shifting radically. She, yeah, she's changing because Gilead's changing her. But but at this moment, um, anytime, well, we try not to be too um, facile with how we use weapons and guns and firearms right. on the show. It's not, I mean, the, the, you know, the guardians, the men carry them, but yes. we, it's not really a show where that we use a lot of that. Um, so I think this might have been one of the first times that we've actually had one on screen. Um, so we want to be mindful about how we're doing that. Mm-hmm. We wanted to make sure it was something that you would, would be you know, in this house in a way that felt realistic. We didn't have, didn't want to have like the extra convenient, um, you know, gun, uh, but also like really play the reality of like, you find it. What are you going to do with it? Do you know how to load it? You know, and then, then if you take the shot, and she, not, for all we know, she's never she's never fired any kind of weapon right. before, um, let alone a shotgun. Um, you know, can you take the shot? In that moment, um, your, her humanity wins. She cannot take the shot. She sees Serena completely reduced to just saying, "I have nothing." Over and over again, like this woman is completely broken, and she hesitates just long enough that she loses her her opportunity to to take the shot. Um, but then, but we also wanted to keep the, the fact that the gun is there is still like is this very right. charged object, this very kind of invested object. Um, you can't just kind of ignore it. So then now she has it. So you feel like she could defend herself if something came along again. You know, up until the moment her when her water breaks outside the garage, like. She's ready to go. She's got the car. She's got the, you know, she's, she's got Oprah supplies, Winfrey on the, radi- on the radio. She's got supplies. She's got her shotgun. She's ready to go. Um, and that's not what ends up happening. But we, I was interested in finding a way, like, does the gun come back around in a surprising way? And so it ends up being the thing that summons help to, to kind of basically deliver her back into Gilead's hands. Um, but, when you, but when she goes out there with the gun, and this was, this was 
intentional, you don't know what she's going to do with it. Right. Is Are she you... going to kill herself? Is she going to kill the wolf? Is she? You, know, you don't know what she's going to do with it. Um, so it ends up being shot, but not at anyone or anything. Right. Used for a totally different totally purpose totally different for purpose. signaling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that moment where you've got this, you know, very pregnant woman in this iconic handmade outfit carrying around this, you know, unwieldy weapon when, as you say, all through the series, we've seen lots of male figures sort of carrying weapons. Like they're the sort of silent threat. And here we have this shift. It's really, it's a, it's a striking moment. So, um, okay. I next want to talk about clothes. (laughs) You can't talk about this show without talking about clothes. Um, and I think in this episode, you've got a lot of great moments with the clothes, right? You've got, um, those wonderful overhead shots with her red dress mm-hmm. against the white snow, oh, yeah. and that really beautiful imagery. But then you've also got those moments where she's sort of stomping through the house, opening wardrobes, trying to find something to cover mm-hmm. the red dress. And I love the fact that she rejects the closet full of wife outfits, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> grabs that big black overcoat that, you know, she's going to be, she's going to take the commander clothes. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what it's like to write for a production where clothes play such a central role? Yeah, it's, it's, it's I'm so glad you bring it up. It's, it's so interesting because you, you feel like in a world like our show where, um, at least for the, for the women and actually for the men too, like that your wardrobe is very limited. It's kind of like, yeah, like, you know, you know, girl animals for grown-ups or uniform, you know, uniforms for, for civilians. Um, we spent a lot of time kind of talking about, you know, what people were wearing when. It was really fun to get um, June in a, in a Martha's outfit in, in, yes. you know, in season three, um, kind of pretend to be Martha for a little bit. Um, yeah, so it's, it, it, what that means, though, is that it makes, in a good way, dramatically, it makes things very hard if you're a woman more generally in June specifically. So, um, and kind of walking through the things she'd be trying to do before she left, because I, you know, I'm sure some people, you know, once she saw the car, people were like, just get the car and go. And we wanted to be more mindful. Like she's going to be smart about it. She knows she's going to give birth kind of any minute now. So she's going to take, you know, she, you know, she, as far as she knows, no one knows where she is. No one's coming to look for her. She doesn't know that until the Waterford show up. So she's not, you know, dawdling, but she, she wants to, she wants to get food and water and medical supplies, um, and a blanket because she's, she, if she's going to do it, she's going to do it right. And then she realizes, ah, oh, <laughs> I, I, I look like a woman. I look like a handmaid. I can't, I look like a stop sign. I look like a stop sign. I'm very, very visible. Um, so, so she goes back in and, and the wife clothes, I mean, I, I love how it plays as disdain, but it's also realistic because women can't drive in Gilead. Right. So a wife driving a car would get pulled over just as fast as a handmaid driving a car. Um, so what she's, what she's trying to do is disguise herself, like trying to hide her femininity. Right. She's nine months pregnant. Like she cannot hide her femininity. <laughs> she's a big giant she has coat. a big coat that barely covers her. Um, and so that kind of, you know, seeing herself and like she's trying to cloak her, her the fact that she's a woman, um, naturally takes her back to when she was very much a woman, like the, the getting dressed for the party scene with, with, uh, with her husband. Um, but yeah, and then at the end, she she's naked. She has no clothes on. You know, right. it's, it's like she's kind of like rejected all of that, rejected everything that Gilead has made her put on, and she's she's just herself, embracing the sort of wolf identity. Yeah, I also love the fact um, that there keeps being that dress form. You know, the um, so with creepy, the right? veil on it. Yeah. yeah. Would, now, was that in was that in your script? Did that get added? Along oh, that was the way? not scripted. I mean, that's that's the kind of the amazing thing about 
taking a script into production is you have all these other amazing craftspeople, the directors and the production designer and the costumers, um, you know, the props designers, the wolf wranglers, <laughs> they bring all their um, amazing art to the, to the project. So that's something that um, was not scripted. It's just something the director and the production designer came up with. And it's, it's haunting. I mean, that's a, it's a, that's a spooky house. <laughs> it's so scary. And just the idea of it being haunted by this sort of, you know, bride-like feminine form that you keep seeing in these moments. Yeah is really stunning. Oh, anyway. Yeah, and so, sometimes that was serendipity. So that might have been... Might have been in the that might have been Yeah, that might have been a, a happy accident. Um, you mentioned before the, 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 the amazing overhead shots of uh, her running with you know, her red cloak against the white snow. Um, I believe that shot was always planned, but we didn't know we would have this amazing blanket of snow um, because a day or two before this, there was no snow. And like, literally two days after this episode filmed... Uh, it was 40 degrees and the snow was all gone. Um, so we got super, super lucky. Uh, it's just, it's stunning with the snow. It's beautiful. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean it, that we could have spent a lot of money in CG to try <laughs> to get that done. Um, but no, it did, uh, the, the Toronto winter actually helped us out there. Very it was, useful. It was very, very cold. Very useful. <laughs> As oh. you can tell. I also want to know about that voice on the radio. The yep. moment when she turns on the radio and it's Oprah. Yeah. Um, why? Why did you guys choose Oprah? Well, so it's it's. Is it Oprah? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, the, 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 yeah. The DJ it's, never. The DJ never identifies herself. Right. She's identified in the script as just a female DJ. Um, and so we had, um, you know, I'd written written the female DJ, and uh, I believe it was an idea of someone in our production office to see if Oprah would be willing to do it. Um, so I'm not even sure how these things happen, but someone talked to somebody and someone talked to someone else's people and she was, she was up for it. Um, and then, uh, yeah. And then, so I, uh, um, I I wrote a a, a full page of other types of, because we we only had like kind of one shot with her. So, um, we, I, I wrote a page of like kind of DJ talk of various kinds. Um, I think there's even a snippet of it in, uh, in season three when the water is going on the road trip. Yeah. When it comes back around, um, uh, and then, yeah, and then she was gracious enough to uh, to do it for us. Um, so yeah, so it's not uh, it's not explicitly Oprah. Obviously, the voice is very recognizable. It was a nice because she started in radio. It's a nice kind of it's kind so of iconic, right? Like no one can say baby yeah. like Oprah. Start, <laughs> starts forever, baby. Yeah, and brilliant. It's, it's also you know in that moment. Um, I mean, again, we didn't. I didn't know this when I when I wrote it, but in that moment, like, what would you want to hear to kind of like ground you, inspire you, and like. Oprah's one, and Bruce Springsteen is kind of another, and um, you know, and that, and finding that so that there was different so, so adding music to TV shows is is a whole a whole process. So right. when they filmed the scene, it was a completely different song that really? they played for her to kind of react to, for Elizabeth to, to react to, um, and then they tried a few other songs uh, as we went through the post process. Um, but now I, I can't imagine anything other than than this. Song. No, it's so. Spot on for that yeah. moment. So, in our last couple of minutes, I want to turn to some of your other work outside *Handmaid's Tale*. So, first of all, um, let's talk about your *Parish Mail* series. Uh-huh. What is for for the audience? What is an interactive Kindle book, and what drew you to that form? Yeah. So, um, so my my professional life before becoming a full-time writer was as a computer game designer. So I, I, I um, 
went to grad school for that, and I worked for Electronic Arts and Microsoft and a couple of startups and Yahoo doing uh, computer game design, uh, as well as, as writing and, and, and producing them. Um, so I, I love interactivity. I, I think interactive narrative, that, that's what I did my, my, my graduate thesis on was interactive narrative. So I, I love that as, as an idea, something where there's an authored story, but you, the participant in the story, have, have agency and choice in what you do. Um, so I uh, was contacted by a, a, like a little startup company in, in Silicon Valley that had built a narrative platform uh, for for doing interactive prose, and they're looking for writers to, to kind of do their inaugural kind of set of books. Um, so yeah, so I wrote uh, the, these a series of young adult novels for them. They're they're called the Parish Mail series. They're they're available on Amazon for Kindle. They're great. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I, they're uh, they're. They're kind of like Buffy meets Veronica Mars. I, I love both those shows, and these books are partially because I really missed them. <laughs> I miss those shows. Um, so it's a supernatural detective um, uh, series, but a young 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 woman, um, a teen who moves back to New Orleans uh, with her her mom to meet the family she never met. She had never met before her grandparents and whatnot. Um, but uh, but the, but the, but it's interactive. So you know when you're yelling at the TV for like the detective should you know don't talk to that suspect. Talk to that, talk to that suspect or no that's the wrong you know, that's the wrong guy that's the wrong clue um, here in the book you actually get to choose the clues that she follows you also get to choose um, some of her like kind of more you know character based things in her life you know um, romantic choices. romantic choices you know who, which friend she wants to hang out with um, and because this was all um, kind of a technology platform um, what that does is whatever choices you make changes the story going forward and it's seamless. So unlike the Choose Your Own Adventure books where you have to kind of flip back and forth, you just read straight through and the book kind of changes depending on what you do. So if you um, kind of blow off the popular girl, uh, her invitation because you want to hang out with, with your kind of cool, quirky, new best friend, the next time you see the popular girl, she'll act differently towards right. you than if you had gone to her, gone to her party. Um, they were really fun. That was, uh, it was very... Um, Creatively challenging because I, you know, the, the the books that you would you'd read the book and it's about forty thousand words that you would read, but I wrote about sixty thousand words because of all you have to do choices. all the other permutations, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So I wrote three of those. Um, I would love to write another one at some point when I have some time. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I think in general it feels like your career is such a great model for students thinking about careers in the industry because you've. Um, done writing in so many different genres that you've done this writing for video games and you've written fiction and you've written for TV. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how, um, how those different um, media have played off each other in your writing life. Yeah. Well, I, I, one thing I will say uh, at first though, is that that, um, that kind of uh, playing in different media is is increasingly common. Like it, it, it didn't didn't used to be. It used to be like I'm a TV writer or I'm a feature writer or I'm a comic book writer. Now nearly every writer I know, um, you know, even full time professional writers um, are doing doing lots of different things. Uh, partially because it's fun. It's always great to kind of try something new or you know, try different type of storytelling or kind of stretch your muscles in a different direction um, as, as a writer. Uh, but also because, you know, the business is changing very quickly and there's lots mm-hmm. of new opportunities. Um, so being able uh, and, and being and wanting to write in different media is, is a really a good thing. I mean, that kind of, you know, narrative curiosity is, is I think, serves writers really well. So, um, so don't feel like you need to get stuck in like, oh, I'm just going to do movies because chances are you won't. I, I, I mean, I, I know very few writers who kind of stick to one medium, um, either for, for, 
logistical getting job reasons or because it's, it's fun. Um, yeah, so for me, I, I, what I like to do is I, I like to look at the idea and sort of see kind of what shape it wants to be. You know, yeah. some, some, you know some, some ideas or movie ideas where they could be told, you know, beginning, middle, end, and, and wrap up in two hours, and that's really all you need. Um, some things might be better uh, as a limited series where it does have an end, but you need more time. So think about it having oh, seven or eight hours or whatever. Um, some some ideas like like Handmaid's Tale, like that is a world and dynamics and relationships that you could mine for many, many episodes. And that speaks to maybe be, being a TV show. And then um, for things like novels and comics, I mean, those are great if you want to play um, with places where, like, either you want to be very internal, uh, because uh, often on, uh, with the exception of sometimes Handmaid's Tale, uh, you don't get a lot of voiceover or internal right. monologue uh, on, on screen so much. Um, but uh, novels, you get to spend a lot of time in the interior life of your characters. Fun. Yeah, you just really, um, which is really was really fun for me to get to do that. Uh, also, you don't have to worry about budget. Like, if you want to blow up a planet, you know, <laughs> you can do that on, in a comic. It's very inexpensive in a comic, and it's very <laughs> cheap in the novel. Um, yeah, like, I think George R. R. Martin famously wrote the Game of Thrones series thing. Like, no one would be ever be able to make this into a TV show because it would be unproducible. Dragons. <laughs> Dragons, you know, battles, and yet they, yet they did. Yeah, that's, that's great advice, just thinking about writing in different, different sorts of yeah. media, having, having a range of different ways to apply your storytelling to talents. Well, thank you very much for coming this evening. Can you please join me in thanking Kira Snyder for um, talking with us this evening? You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.